for an airplane to take off, driving down the runway, it has to hit escape velocity. And that escape velocity is the point at which the lift generated from the speed of the plane enables it to take off and fly. That same plane, if it never reaches that speed, could travel for 100 miles on the runway and never take off. And I think projects are sort of the same thing. Projects need to have a critical, a critical mass. They need to reach a point where they kind of tip from being an idea or a possibility into a plan and an executable plan and a reality. How do you produce innovation? How do you produce anything? It's always been about reinventing a form. I think we're all in this room together because we believe in lifelong learning. It's all about persistence. If you give up, that's the end of the game. You have no chance. I wanted to go make my own mistakes in pursuit of, I didn't even know what at the time. Show up, show up when you fail, show up when you fail miserably, show up when you don't want to show up. There's an audacity that I think is required to, to be a creator. Just start, like don't wait for permission. Sit down at the table with some of the great creators, some of the people who have cut new ground and found a new path and done things that are like improbable and ludicrous and wonderful and for which we should all be grateful in the worlds of art and theater and music and technology and innovation. This is Producing You're listening to Producing Innovation. I'm Michael Counts, and this is episode one of Producing Innovation, a podcast that I'm doing with my team at Counts Projects to explore what it is to produce innovation by talking to some of the most innovative, talented producers that I know from my network, people who have inspired me along the way. And this week on the first episode, I wanted to share my story. I grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, I went to PS6. And PS6 is a block from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And in fifth grade, you're allowed to go out to lunch. At least you were in the 70s when I went to elementary school there. And we would go, we'd go out at lunch and we would go to the Met and we'd pay a dime because it was pay what you want. And we would just go in and walk around. And, and like, the, like to me, that was such a formative thing in my career, in my life, in my whole experience. And I feel like the two things that I look back on as my in my childhood that I feel like define who I am and what I do today were that I love to go to wood shop at day camp and build things out of wood and model boats and furniture and stuff. And that I used to go to the Met all the time and I'd walk around. And, you know, my experience of art was as a result of going to the Met and being able to walk around and being in fifth grade and really not knowing the particulars of what I was seeing, but having this just overall experience of walking through these immense galleries and, and walking through the history of art and walking through the Temple of Dender, you know, like and, and, and experiencing these things as these huge installations. And I guess it was something about that freedom, you know, finding my own way define so much of who I am as an artist and you know and years later when I was in college I met a guy who had become sort of my mentor and he was this very unique odd brilliant Indian man named Gautam Dasgupta and 
he and his wife, Bonnie Maranka, had been editing the Performing Arts Journal. They'd founded it. They'd edited a ton of books of the New York avant-garde and the theatrical avant-garde and film avant-garde. And he, he was this guy who had come from India. And as long as he was in school, they wouldn't send him home to India. So he got something like five master's degrees. He was one of the broadest thinkers of anyone I had ever met. And his ability to find the connections between things. And his classes were like legendary in the theater department at Skidmore where I went to college. Because we would just show up and it was always like the kind of smart, quirky, avant-garde kids who just gravitated to him. And someone would just like ask a question random about news of the day or anything or a thought or a, they listened to Miles Davis last night. And he would just, boom, like just spin off into this like 45 minute brilliant like sort of rant like connecting it all and connecting it to the history of you know everything and 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 to me in him I fell in love with the avant-garde and I fell in love with the history of 20th century art and 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 I started seeing and being introduced to people who just did it totally differently who did not follow the normal path that others in their sort of community and peer group were taking. Um, people who, people like Marcel Duchamp, people like Gertrude Stein, people like um, Picasso, people like Merce Cunningham, Robert Rauschenberg, John Cage, like people who were just thinking so far out of the box and, and just seeing how they did that and seeing what that allowed uh, for them creatively and and I was just taken with that. And I started, like, I was a, I was in the theater department, but I never studied theater. Like, I, I studied directing, but I never stu studied it from the perspective of, like, how do you take a play off the shelf and stage it in the way that the stage direction tells you to do? Like, I never even considered that as, a, as, a, as something I was interested in doing. Um, eventually, I started getting inspired by the classics, but it was through him that I realized that there was this whole generation of artists that I was just just so enamored with and inspired by. And when I finished school, I went and basically just toured around Europe by myself, sometimes with Gautam and his wife, sometimes by myself, just seeing the art and the theater of all these people that I had been studying. And um, between that and the Performing Arts Library at Lincoln Center, I just saw all of this, you know, this incredible work in dance, theater, opera, visual art, music, um, installations, performance art, a lot of performance art and happenings and and I just saw that there was this 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 the beginnings of this mode of just creating these wild experiences and pulling from I mean a lot of these artists that like what I loved about them was they just pulled from whatever discipline that made sense in that moment for them. There was no like, oh, this is how a musician thinks and we'll draw from the, the canon of music to find our inspiration. They were like people just all over the place and, and, and that in some ways defined the avant-garde, but for me it sure opened up a world of possibilities that made me think really that anything was possible and that theater was how you defined it, not how someone else had defined it. And art was how it made sense in that cultural moment in history, not how it made sense a year before, a hundred years before or in the beginnings. And so I toured around Europe and I decided while I was there that I was like, all I wanted to do was start a, my own company and start making my own work. And 
through Gautam, I had had opportunities to go and study with other directors and, and even some of my heroes. I could have gone assist, you know, Robert Wilson or something. And, and I just, I was just so clear that I just wanted to go and do my own work. And, 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 and as I eventually said, just make my own mistakes, um, figure out my own path, figure out what is, if I knew what the work of Robert Wilson looked like, and I knew what the work of Reza Abdo looked like, and Richard Foreman, and the Fluxus movement, and what a Robert Rauschenberg installation, performance art event looked like, it's like, what does the work of Michael Counts look like? And what is its tone? What, is it, what does it feel like? What does it look like? What, what defines it? How fast does it move? How slow does it move? How colorful? How vibrant? How spectacular is it? And, and I kind of set on the path of figuring that out. And I came back from Europe, worked four jobs for six months, saved $10,000, and moved back to Saratoga Springs, where I had gone to college, and rented a storefront and said, this is going to be my theater, and this is my art studio, and I'm going to create a company, and I'm going to start producing work here. And I had like no idea how much I didn't know, but I didn't care. And I paid for 10 months rent up front. I lived in the back room, which was a, a sort of a big closet with no windows. And... I started using the shop at Skidmore. I started recruiting actors who I had known. I had an audience of people who liked the work that I had done in college and started just making these weird late night, you know, performance events, parties, spectacles, installations. And and then and I also to circle back to the Met, the culminating moment of that that era for me was uh, about six months in, a bunch of us came down to the Met. Just on a Saturday, we were like, oh, let's get out of Saratoga and let's go to the Met and go bug out in the city for a while. So we did. And I was standing on the steps of the Met and I was remembering what a what a, like, a critical place that was for me growing up and how much it had informed everything I had done artistically up to that point. And I said, I want to do a performance here. I want to do a piece of art on the steps of the Met, on this whole promenade that it meant so much to me growing up. And I said, in a month's time, we're going to come back here and we're going to do this. This We're going to create a, a happening, you know. And a month later, 35 of us came back in a bunch of cars from the city. And we had gone back that afternoon um, and, like, started making costumes and planning things and, 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 and hacking, you know, one of our, our lighting guys, this technician, who's just a brilliant guy, jerry-rigged this plug so we could plug it into this, like, custom plug that the Met had to, like, steal electricity so we could power our lights and this thing, and it was all, like, super gorilla. And we came back a month later, 35 of us, and staged this incredible spectacle that happened in the afternoon, and it basically stopped traffic on Fifth Avenue, and then we came back later that night and did another, the second half, Act 2, was in the night, and we had all this light and the spectacle, and 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 it was like, it was so incredible, and there are great visuals that go along with this. Um, the peak moment was a cab pulls up in front of the Met, right in front of the, the, the steps to the doors, and a woman gets out of the cab, and she's wrapped in this little Indian sari, right? And she starts walking towards the steps and up the steps. And she's, her dress is attached to this bolt of cloth. And so there's someone like crouching down in the, in the cab and it's just unfurling. And she walks, keeps walking up the steps and this dress is just like 20 feet, 40 feet, 60 feet, 80 feet of dress. And she gets to the top of the steps, unwraps the sari. The, the dress flies up in the air. They pull it back in the cab, close the door. The cab takes off. And everybody... Just like, it was like 
everything stopped on Fifth Avenue. People just stopped and were like, what is going on? Traffic stopped on Fifth Avenue. And she walked into the Met and it was gone. And it was like this, it was as if right in front of our eyes, like all the stars aligned and then, and then they just went their separate ways again. And years later, after that moment happened, my mother, who lived in New York, she was a real estate broker, and she was in a cab going down Fifth Avenue with a client in the car. And as they're passing the Met, this woman starts to tell my mom this story of having, she said, she said, about, she said six years ago, I was getting ready to leave New York. I was going to move out of the city. And I was on Fifth Avenue this one Saturday afternoon, and this this incredible event happened and this spectacle and these people and these performers and this woman gets out of the cab she starts walking up in the dress and and and, and my mom is like in disbelief that she's telling the story about the project that her son had done she knew I had done this this piece there and and the woman says and I saw that event happen and I don't know what it was but I decided in that moment to not move to not leave New York because it was like, if this can happen in this city, this is the place for me. And she stayed. And then my mom like started crying and like told her the whole story. For, for years, I was passionate about a site-specific work that was for an unexpecting audience. After that piece, we did a piece, um, the same company of actors uh, did a piece in, in, in at this 40-acre estate in Devon, Pennsylvania. And then we took that whole concept to Prague in the Czech Republic in 1995 and did this 12-day piece all over the city of Prague with like 17 performers came with us in costumes and spectacle and lights and all this. We powered it all off of car batteries and halogen lights. And it was just this in, in, insane experience to make theater. But it was like, it wasn't like street theater like I'm a juggler. It was like street theater to like, like highly produced, high production value street theater. And it was in those couple of productions early on that I, that I realized like, there were no limits to what you could do as an artist. There were no limits to what you could do if you just like put your mind to it and and were willing to kind of, I mean, in those days I had a very kind of kamikaze approach to my own personal finances. Like I just, I just put shows on credit cards and just like run up, like it was, you know, I, I'd heard all, all my heroes had done the same. It was like, you know, you hear about it, like filmmakers who like funded their first film on credit cards and, you know, beg, bar and stole everything. And we did that. But like, I was like, I didn't care. I just wanted to make my art and I wanted to find myself as an artist and find out who, what the work of Michael Counts looked like. What, if I could, if my work could be an extension of who I was inside, what did it look like? And I wanted to find that out. And, and through those early productions, I realized that you could really do anything and that I could do anything and that there was so much possible. So you go so far beyond what was reasonable and, 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 and still make it happen. And and so I came back from Prague and started the company that, in many respects, a lot of people know me for, which was Gail Gates. And I met um, an incredible artist, producer named Michelle Stern, and she was became my sort of co-founder of Gail Gates and a bunch of other actors and performers and crazy people. And we just started this company um, and started doing work and finding, getting access to spaces um, in Lower Manhattan through the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council and finding our way into, eventually we got a space for a year. And then after that, we convinced the developer of Dumbo in Brooklyn to give us this enormous space. They gave it to us for a year and then that became six years. And and in, in that space, I did all of my early work. The first 
pieces that I had done that were written up in the New York Times or started to get real audiences coming or started to get grants and grant funding and, you know, gain the attention of the sort of the mainstream, you know, New York avant-garde. I got to know Joe Melillo, who was the producer at BAM, who became sort of a fan of my work and supported us early on. And, like, a lot of people... You know, I would say by that time, throughout my 20s, I really started to figure out, like, what what I was doing and what I was passionate about. And it was really creating experiences. It was creating immersive, theatrical, transportive experiences that have really what I've, what I've carried through to now. I mean, that was a long time ago. Someone once said to me, now it's sort of de rigueur, but, like, what is immersive theater? And I said... Well, the best example of immersive theater that I know is this production of the Divine Comedy that I did. And and instead of telling the audience the story of Dante's journey through the nine circles of hell, purgatory, and paradise, we cast the audience as Dante and took them on a journey through nine circles of hell, purgatory, and paradise. And to me, that, that's it in a nutshell. It's like you're not... It's not this willful suspension of disbelief from this fourth wall and a performer that you're identifying with. Like, you're it. You're the agent. And I think, you know, there's a lot of theory around the idea that a generation of people raised playing video games where they're the agent, you know, where they're, it's really their adventure, that that is, that is sort of force the necessity of, of immersive theater and immersive entertainment because they want to participate. They want to be included. They want to affect the outcome. They want it to be their story and their adventure. And I think that's what some of us were really keying into in the early days of immersive theater, that that was what people really wanted. And in that piece, which I think, you know, it was certainly the most pressed, the best reviews I ever got um, up to that point were for that adaptation of the Divine Comedy. And the guys who had started Blue Man Group um, came and saw that show, and um, and they 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 I got to know them a little bit after, and they said, "Hey, we took what were in the '80s very sort of like avant-garde performance art ideas and turned it into a global entertainment brand, which is what Blue Man Group represents." They said, "We think that what you're doing here is really the next the next thing," and this is like before. You know, years before Sleep No More, years before people were calling it immersive theater, um, but where the, where the ideas were starting to take shape, they said very rightly, like, this is where things are headed. And they encouraged me to think about what I would do, consistent with my values and aesthetics and ideas about, you know, wanting to kind of push the envelope and not dumb things down. Um, they said, great, keep all that. We did, you know, keep all that, stay true to that. But what would you do if you were going to make something for a more mainstream audience? Right now you're talking to like 1% of the 1% in this sort of avant-garde context in Brooklyn. But if you had the means to do something in Times Square or in a mainstream entertainment market, what would you do? And I came up with this idea for the ride, which was sort of a merging of my love of journey pieces and my love of site-specific, you know, the, 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 the equivalent of what I did at the Met is is if if the Met were on the route of the ride, we'd do something at the Met, you know, like that. It was the same idea of wanting to have the reality of this of the city in front of you, which is just, you know, the 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 world as it is, kind of come to life and enter the world of the show. You know that that old, you know, Shakespearean truth, uh, all the world's a stage. Like yeah. But how do you make that manifest? How do you really bring people into that idea? And and that my solution was something like the ride or something like you know the piece we did at the Met. And um, 
and the ride took forever to get produced. It was such a out of the box idea. A challenge with producing innovation is that people are really attracted to innovation and they want it. They want to fund it. They want to be a part of innovation and, 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 and breaking new ground. And yet it's terrifying because it hasn't happened yet. And, 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 and the road to invention is by definition uncertain. And so the idea of like, well, what if it doesn't work? Or what if we invest and it, it goes sideways? What if no one wants to go on the ride? What if the buses break down? What if there's traffic? And all these you know, possibilities become obstacles, but we just stuck with it. And year after year, I pitched it and pitched it and pitched it. And, and we raised millions of dollars to produce the ride. Blue Man was the first major investor, but eventually we raised millions more beyond them and partnered with them. And they helped sort of us find our way. And that piece has now been running in New York for, you know, coming up in September will be nine years. And that is like unheard of. I mean, there are very few shows or attractions that have been happening for that long. And I think that that, that is a part of, you know, the evidence that like some of these fundamental ideas that we were wrestling with early on that I was really passionately drawn to are really fundamental to what entertainment needs to be today. And I think now I've just sort of, you know, taken it to the next level with projects like the, the, the pieces that we did with The Walking Dead and taking their experience and turning it into this, this immersive, you know, like you're dropped into a narrative like The Walking Dead or something like that. And, and you're just inside of it and it's, it feels real and it feels scary and it feels um, like you're really living inside of a, a suspense thriller or a horror film or whatever, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, and the most, the piece that I'm now sort of is like the best example of, of who I am and what I do. Though there have been many things along the way, you know, large scale public art like Lake Nona or large-scale fashion shows like I did um, I creative directed Michael Kors's brand launch in Shanghai China but the, the really the, the the piece that is like the best example to me of who I am today as an artist is August Moon drive-in and the August Moon drive-in is 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 transportive and it's immersive theater but it's it, it, its purpose in the world is that it's it's a movie theater and it's a it's a it's a restaurant bar but it's like if you think of the idea that like the Venetian hotel and casino in Las Vegas and Macau transports you to a rendition of Venice, but on a, on an immense scale that makes it feel like you're really being transported somewhere is August moon transports audiences to a perfect summer night at a classic American drive-in movie theater in 1965, where literally we've made a full size replica, like a film set on a soundstage of a country drive-in movie theater in 1965 at sunset where there are 45 vintage cars and a huge movie screen and 50 trees and grass and the whole the whole landscape everything down to fireflies and the sound of crickets transportive entertainment puts the audience inside of the experience that takes them somewhere in the same way that immersive theater does but but it doesn't have to have a performative element when if you can really effectively put the audience inside of the experience, transport them into this reality, move them in space and time, that alone, they become the performers in effect. And and so that's what we're working on right now. That to me, you know, it'll launch in uh, late 2019 in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And, you know, that and other projects like it are kind of where we're headed. And producing innovation is is the means by which we intend to do that, you know, like this to me, 
the, the, the teams that we're building, the fans that we're attracting, the partnerships that we're, you know, sort of starting to realize to make these things happen are, are all part of what we're doing with producing innovation and using this as a forum to explore our own process, but, but to also share it, you know, like, like through all that and through that whole process to me, I've learned a tremendous amount like through successes and failures, mostly failures, and lessons learned and struggles overcome, I've learned a lot about how to persist and how to communicate, how to explain an idea and translate it to whoever I'm speaking with so that they can understand the value. Like to me, directing and the kind of work that I've always created is really about bridge building. Taking, like putting my hand out to the audience and saying, take my hand and come with me and then transport them into some world. It could be a theatrical world, it could be a spectacle, but it's always that point of connection and then saying, come on a journey with me. And I think in communicating, even in describing what a show is, what a concept is, is you have to do the same thing. You have to put it into the terms that someone else can understand and sort of look at it from their point of view. And that process and understanding how to do that took me a long time to figure out and, and, and a long time to understand the nuances of and a long time to understand how do you raise money for a project and how do you deploy that money and how do you partner with people and how do you not partner with people and what money is dangerous to take and how to, how to produce innovation in the, in the theatrical and the art and the entertainment context because it's, it's, it's like... Like in any field, invention is, I said it earlier, but the, like the path to invention is by definition uncertain, which means it's hard and scary and there's no roadmap. And, you know, we've focused on, I've focused on art, theater, entertainment, opera, media, technology, but like the, the principles are the same in whatever field. And I think that what I've learned along the way are really valuable lessons that I want to share. You know, they're, 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 I had, a, I had, I mentioned Gautam Dasgupta, my first and, and sort of most important mentor, but like I've had many great mentors. Matt Goldman, the CEO of Blue Man Group, was a great mentor to me. Um, Ann Hamburger, who was one of the great, um, is one of the great uh, site-specific theater producers in New York and the world. And she was a, a mentor of mine. And, and these people like shared such wisdom in their experience and the things that they had learned in the years before I was coming up. And they shared those things. And I think what I'm intending to do with producing innovation and this podcast is to share the things that I've learned and hope that that encourages you know, more innovation elsewhere. That some kid in Manila you know, who has dreams of producing you know, parties or spectacles or art or theater or events, hears this and understands something about what I've done, saves him some or her some, you know, like shortens the, the path to that, that my experience can give them a little wind in their sails or create a little bit more momentum or give them the faith that, 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 that if they keep going, they will ultimately succeed, which is, you know, I think a certainty, but a lot of people give up. And, and so my hope is, is that by providing these experiences and by bringing in, you know, the people who inspired me, friends, collaborators, you know, people who I revere, great talents in, in all these fields of art, theater, production, entertainment, 
technology, management, artists that are just, you know, thinking so far out of the box and really defining what the forms that they're working in are today in 2019. And that's, that's exciting. And I think, I know for me, I'm, I'm excited to have those conversations. Um, and I think that, that the insights that will come out of them will be valuable to anybody listening. If you're interested in producing innovation, whatever that means to you and whatever form you're working in, um, you know, the insights that, that, that I think we have the opportunity to explore and examine and offer up um, will certainly be something that you can identify with and maybe will be something that you will really value. Join us next week on episode two, where we sit down with Vivek Tiwari, an award-winning Broadway producer, screenwriter, and the author of the New York Times best-selling graphic novel, The Fifth Beatle. Follow Counts Projects on Facebook and Instagram, or check out Producing Innovation on Patreon, where you can subscribe to join our community for production updates, behind-the-scenes access, creative meeting highlights, regular posts from me and the team, special offers, meetups, and more. Please remember to rate, share, comment, and subscribe to Producing Innovation wherever you listen to your podcasts.